Good afternoon. Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the views that are expressed on this program are not the views of Howard County Community College. And any legal discussion that you hear today is not intended to be legal advice. It's vitally important, if you have a legal problem, that you go see an actual lawyer and acquaint them with the facts of your individual situation. We have an unusual privilege today in that we have Deputy Howard County State's Attorney Kim Oldham on the program. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Bob, for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Kim has worked in the Howard County State's Attorney's Office for 21 years. Prior to that, she was a law clerk to the Honorable Dennis Sweeney in the Circuit Court for Howard County. She's a graduate of the Catholic University Law School and a Virginia Tech Hokie as well. Yes, I am. Um, one of the things that I thought I would say at the outset is that Kim is actually looking for a job promotion in the coming year to become the state's attorney for Howard County. Congratulations, Kim. Thank you very much. Um, when did this idea of being the uh, state's attorney for Howard County first gestate in your brain? That would have been when the current state's attorney, my boss, Dario Broccolino, was running back in 2014. Uh, we started talking about at some point in time he was going to retire and he planted the seed in my mind that I was the right person to take over that top position in the office and lead the state's attorney's office. That's a very flattering thing to have happen. <laughs> it to have was. your boss think you're the one. It was. So let's just go back a little bit. And when did you first think that you wanted to you know, have a career in the law? When did that first come into your... For as long as I can remember. Uh, my father was a special investigator for the Office of Special Investigations for the Air Force. And I knew that I wanted to be among the public safety partners and helping to protect the community that I was living in. Okay. And was your clerkship with Judge Sweeney helpful in that regard? It was, and that as a law clerk, you get to see both sides, both areas of the law, civil and criminal. Um, it was an opportunity to be in the courtroom as often as I could to watch attorneys um, see you know, what worked, what maybe didn't work as a litigator, but it certainly confirmed my interest and belief that a prosecutor was the path that I wanted to take. So you applied to the state's attorney's office, presumably, and you were accepted. That's right. Okay. And what did you start off doing in the state's attorney's office? I started off where all prosecutors in the Howard County state's attorney's office begin, which is in the district court, prosecuting uh, misdemeanors. Uh, that consists of anything from DUI, shoplifting, simple assault and batteries, uh, trespassing cases. So any misdemeanor takes place in the district court. I often describe district court practice as being sort of like the Western frontier, that anything <laughs> goes there. Is that your experience as well? That is. Um, I would describe the pace in district court as very fast moving. You have to be a very strong multitasker. There's a high volume of cases there. They handle over 20,000 misdemeanor cases in the district court. So the prosecutors there are incredibly busy in a different way. Sure. And at some point in time, I gather that you moved out of district court. I did. I think just shy of two years, I was promoted to the circuit court division, which is where all major felonies are prosecuted. So we've discussed on previous programs the difference between district court and circuit court. One of the most significant differences, aside from the fact that felonies are prosecuted there, is that it also involves jury trials, which is not true in the district court. Correct. correct. That's correct. Circuit court, uh, major felonies, the 
defendant has the right. It's always up to the defendant whether they want to have a court trial or a jury trial. So that's a selection that they make. And they can make it up until the very morning of trial and change their mind and decide which type of trial they'd like to have. So I presume that they would elect based on strategic reasons. Yes, because it's you know, arguably more difficult for the state to convince 12 people the verdict has to be unanimous and the state's burden is a high one. We have to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. So you know, one perspective may be it's more difficult for the state if there's a jury trial and that we have to convince all 12 people to convict. Is it your experience that the jurors of Howard County are any more difficult to persuade than the judges? The Howard County jurors are incredibly attentive. They are incredibly thorough. Uh, There has not been a single jury trial that I've had in my career where I have not walked out of the courtroom and been impressed with the amount of thought that was given by jurors. And you can tell that by the questions. They're permitted during the course of their deliberations to send out questions to the judge. The judge consults with both the defense and the state as to how to answer those questions. Um, they're just incredibly thorough with their review of the evidence and holding the state to the burden as, as they should be doing. And fair-minded, I presume. Yes, very. That's a wonderful situation. So one of the things I had discussed with you beforehand is to talk a little bit about what the state's attorney's office does, and then to focus a little bit on things that we don't typically predict, you know, think of a prosecutor's office as doing. Right. So primarily (laughs) the state's attorney's office, we are the prosecuting authority for Howard County. Every jurisdiction in Maryland, including Baltimore City, has its own state's attorney's office. So any crime that occurs within the borders of Howard County is prosecuted by the state's attorney's office. Our primary role, obviously, when we're prosecuting those crimes is to hold the offender accountable, to hopefully make a victim, if there's a victim in the crime, whole, if that's possible, um, achieve some sort of closure for what happened to him or her, and ultimately try to determine what is the best, most appropriate sentence to recommend to the court for this particular crime involving this particular defendant. So there's all sorts of factors that are taken into consideration by the prosecutors. It's not just what type of crime was it and what was the effect. We also take into consideration certain variables with this particular defendant, whether it's age, background, are they a repeat offender? Is this their first time having contact with the criminal justice system? Are there mental health issues? Was there a drug addiction involved? So there's a lot of moving parts to it. And, you know, we don't have a particular equation that equals the same recommendation in every single case. Everything's on a case-by-case basis uh, in making that decision. So it sounds like a fairly complex process. How early in a significant case, and I'm talking about a felony, are the state's attorneys typically involved? We are involved uh, at the very beginning, sometimes even before there are charges. If there is a particularly serious or complex investigation that the police department is conducting, they will often reach out to us, consult with us on whether it's, you know, how do we lawfully obtain this type of information? Do we need a search warrant or a court order? Um, How do we handle this particular witness that's not being cooperative? Do we need to issue a summons? Can we force them to appear before the grand jury? Or, for example, uh, we have someone that has information on solving this particular crime. How do we work out an arrangement with that person? Or they're willing to cooperate, but they've, you know, they're hesitant. So we get involved sometimes even before there are charges, and we assist in bringing those charges to bear. There's other 
other times, probably more frequent, where we're, we're seeing the cases after someone's been arrested, after they've been taken to the commissioner's office and a statement of charges has been filed. And once that paperwork comes across the street to us, we review uh, those charges and determine whether or not preliminarily we're able to proceed. We get it assigned to somebody and that prosecutor begins meeting with the witnesses and the police to get it prepared for court. So I would presume that you end up working regularly with the Howard County Police and also the Maryland State Police. Yes, we work regularly with Howard County Police, State Police, and the Sheriff's Office as well. And I would gather that victims' families often have a good deal to say about the circumstances of things. They do. Uh, We try to reach out to – well, we do reach out to the victims as soon as we can – First and foremost, we want to make sure that they are safe, especially, for example, if it's a domestic violence type of crime, Um, what they need at that moment, if there's any services that we can refer them to and provide. Uh, But we do also want to start preparing them for the lengthy process, because once someone is charged, the case is not going to be wrapped up within a few weeks. Um, It is going to take some time to get its way through the criminal justice system and ultimately, hopefully, to the right result. But we do keep in touch with the victims regularly as well as witnesses. We sit down and meet with them. We go over uh, the case. We try to prepare them for what they should expect when they do have to come to court, whether it's for a motions hearing or trial to testify. Um, And we certainly take into consideration victims' thoughts and their input when it comes to extending a plea offer in a particular case. We always want to talk to them beforehand and make sure they understand that ultimately it's our decision what plea offer is made, what sentencing recommendation we think is appropriate. But we do want to give them an opportunity to talk to us about how the case has impacted their lives and what they think would be an appropriate disposition in the case. So I would presume your evaluation before you present it to the victims is a fairly complicated one that is legal in nature and may be a little difficult for lay people to understand sometimes when they've lost a family member or some awful thing has been visited upon them. Well, certainly in particular with murder cases when there is a victim that was lost, you know, what we're trying to do is provide some sort of closure, but it's certainly not going to, you know, it's not going to make that surviving family whole again, that's for sure. Um, those are That's probably the most difficult part of being a prosecutor is seeing sometimes the lasting effects that a particular type of crime has on somebody or someone's family. Um, you know, there's that ripple effect that just goes beyond the court dates. Um, in fact, my very first murder case from 2000, might have been 2000, was the murder of a 14-year-old girl, a uh, student at Longreach. And Her mother, for the past 18 years, has been to court, I don't know how many times. Um, Both of the assailants, both of the defendants were convicted. They're serving life sentences. Yet, given the uh, number of opportunities that they have to file different types of post-trial motions and appeals, you know, and request hearings on these motions that they're filing, she comes, comes to court still to this day to try to fight their release, uh, as well as obviously the the state. I continue to um, handle that case whenever it comes to court. But it's very difficult to have a case where despite the fact that you got the best result that you could get in court, to know that it still isn't enough in a way for for her. Wow. That's a fairly high impact thing to have to live with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So what's something the state's attorneys and offices involved in that we would not typically, you know, associate with them? 
I'm glad you asked me that question okay, because it gives me ahead. an opportunity to brag a little bit about I, our office. I like office. that. I like that. <laughs> like you have the a bragging fine office. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think most people assume or think that the prosecutors in our office are simply handling files. You know, going to court, pushing papers, but our office in particular takes our role as a prosecutor outside of the courtroom in so many different ways. Believe it or not, our prosecutors are uh, volunteers for the state mock trial competition among high schools. Every spring we volunteer and we are judges for the mock trial competitions. Um, every spring our prosecutors are volunteering in elementary schools throughout the entire county to be judges for the simulated congressional hearings. Are you familiar with no, that? No, that sounds wonderful. So it's a national program, but in Howard County, it's specifically for fifth graders. And every single elementary school in the county now participates in it. I think when it first started a long time ago, there was less than a handful of schools, but now every single school does it. And the fifth graders, they essentially work for months and months and they become experts on a particular area of constitutional law. And they prepare speeches and um, almost in a debate type fashion, present their expertise, so to speak, to a panel of judges. And the panel of judges were essentially congressional uh, leaders. And so we're hearing them as a group as experts on a particular field and we pepper them with questions and it's they've put so much work into it and um, the schools like to try to get different community leaders and people from different backgrounds to come in and be as judges so there's parents there's teachers there's scientists um, there's retired individuals from just all sorts of different backgrounds that come in and volunteer to be judges so we have our prosecutors doing that we spend countless number of hours at the police academy for the Howard County Police Department um, we instruct them and teach them on various areas of criminal law, Fourth Amendment, search and seizure, Fifth Amendment, uh, law and confessions, and taking voluntary statements. We put together trainings for all sworn police members. Um, so there's a lot of things that we do outside of the courtroom that I think the average member of the community doesn't realize um, that we're doing. But, you know, we think it's important for us to participate in the community in this way. I mean, we're essentially leaders and there's just other things that we can do outside of handling cases to, you know, contribute to the community and the public safety partnership. Sounds great. I understand that you also have had occasion to go down to the state legislature to speak to various issues of importance. Yes. One of the things, excuse me, that I've done the past several years is to head to Annapolis during the legislative session and testify on certain pieces of legislation, either for or against um, those that pertain to either victims' rights or public safety issues. I think that's an incredibly important position for an elected state's attorney uh, or any prosecutor can sign up to testify on these particular bills. But as state's attorney, I would certainly make my presence more frequent in Annapolis to contribute testimony that I thought was important and impactful on a particular issue. So for example, two years in a row, I went to Annapolis to testify on a piece of legislation that eventually did pass and is now in effect, and that was to increase the maximum penalty for second-degree murder from 30 years to 40 years. The reason that that piece of legislation was put forth was because for a violent offense such as first-degree murder or second-degree murder, the person is eligible for parole after serving 50% of the time. It doesn't mean that they are going to get out, but sure. they're just eligible for parole. So for a family member who had a victim that was lost to second-degree murder, 
which is essentially intentionally killing somebody but without the premeditation aspect of it. Sure. To know that that person is eligible for parole after a mere 15 years is incredibly difficult to grasp. Um, One of the individuals that came with me to testify with me at those hearings two years in a row was an individual whose aunt was murdered back in 1991. It remained a cold case homicide until I think it was 2012 when her body was discovered buried in her own backyard. Oh, God. Um, And she had two young children at the time. Her husband was eventually charged. Myself and my colleague uh, prosecuted that individual a few years ago. He was found guilty of second-degree murder. The judge imposed the maximum sentence at the time, which was 30 years. And when David Muller went to testify with me, uh, the victim's nephew, he told the panel of representatives, he said, you know, when, when this person was sentenced, the judge said to him, I would give you more time if I could, but the maximum penalty is 30 years. So the heart of what we wanted to, to present to the legislators was, you know, there can be a second degree murder that is just as heinous as a first-degree murder case. Sure. And, you know, it's it's we're not looking to have a, a harsher sentence to use as some sort of bargaining chip. We're just trying to ensure that there is a chance that somebody could really have the right and the just sentence. And 30 years, possibly only 15, is just not that sentence when they've taken the life of somebody violently like that. So, Did you feel that the legislature was affected? I think that they must have been. It went into effect October 1st of this year. So, okay. And it, I presume it did not have any kind of retrospective application, though. No, it did not. So is this your first foray into electoral politics? Yes, definitely. And, and how, are, how are you finding it? <laughs> I am finding it to be certainly different than the past 20 years of my career. I have been a line prosecutor at heart. I certainly have had a significant number of years as a supervisor. Uh, In addition to being a line prosecutor, I uh, was a felony trial team attorney supervising other attorneys for a number of years before being appointed by Mr. Broccolino in 2011 to serve as his deputy, which is a role that I've had since. I have been, in addition to assisting the management of the office, also been keeping a full caseload as well because, again, that's just... A passion of mine is to handle the cases on behalf of the community. But the one significant addition since I announced in March is just the opportunity to meet a number of people in the community whose paths I wouldn't have otherwise crossed. Um, Going to a lot more events and having an opportunity to talk to people, not because they're a witness in a case or they were a victim of a crime, but simply they learn where I work, they learn what my passion is, and it's an opportunity to engage them in discussion about things that they find to be important in Howard County. I have been pleasantly surprised during these outings where you know I've had people come up to me and when they find out where I work, they say to me, I just want you to know that this particular prosecutor in your office did such a fantastic job on a case in which I was a victim. And then they proceed to tell me what a glowing and thoughtful uh, manner this person had when handling this case uh, for them. That happened, has happened now twice. So it's been great in many different aspects. So are there specific issues that differentiate candidates in state's attorney elections, or or do you really even know yet? There shouldn't be. I mean, I think, you know, the same issues are there in the county that candidates should be 
ready and uh, willing to discuss. I, I think the most important thing that citizens should know right now about this particular position is that of all elected positions, the state's attorney is one that should not be based on party affiliation. There is not a single thing that I can think of that would play out in the courtroom that should reveal what my party affiliation is. Um, yeah, I prosecuted a murder case in September for two weeks, and if somebody told me that there was a Democratic way to prosecute that case versus a Republican way to prosecute that case, I would tell them they don't understand what a prosecutor does. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think a big part of it is is for the community to understand the role of the prosecutor, and it should, you know, the main factor should be the person, their background, their career. And in this particular case, my entire career has been invested in keeping the citizens of this particular county safe. I don't think there is a single nook of the county that I have not affected and contributed to its public safety in all of the cases that I have prosecuted. Sounds like high qualifications for the job in my view. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, do you have an opponent presently? I do presently have one opponent. The do, you, do you anticipate more? I don't. Okay. But the window does not close until February. Okay. And the election would be next November, yes. I presume. Yes. Same time as the gubernatorial yes. election. Is there anything that differentiates you in terms of views from your opponent, or do you have a sense of that at this stage? I don't have a sense um, at this stage as far as my sure. opponent is concerned, but I can tell you that from my perspective, my main concern is always going to be public safety. You know, I think that the pro a prosecutor's role is to always keep that as a significant factor, not the only factor. As I said, there's always going to be different issues that we have to um, weigh. We're certainly not uh, robotic in our decision-making. When there's a serious mental health issue involved in a particular case, someone with a serious drug addiction, then we're going to handle it fairly and appropriately. We're not, you know, we may be a count one office, meaning, you know, when, especially for violent offenses and repeat offenses, we're gonna seek a penalty on the top count, the most serious charge. Um, but, you know, again, it's case by case basis and, when there's other factors and other issues involved, we're going to try to resolve the case as, as fairly and justly as we can. I would think it would be advantageous to whomever is going to be the next state's attorney to have worked in the office for 21 years and come to understand the procedures and the personnel and that sort of thing. I, I certainly think so 100 um, percent. I have never worked for another county's prosecutor's office. I have only devoted my time and efforts to the citizens of Howard County. And certainly on top of that, with my experience as a supervisor in that office, my years now as deputy assisting in running that office, I, you know, I've worked for three different state's attorneys now, different party affiliations. I don't think any one of them ever knew what my party affiliation was. Mr. Broccolino didn't even know, nor did he ask at the time that he appointed me as his deputy. But I think all three of those state's attorneys would say that I was their top prosecutor and contributed to taking our office to the top as far as reputation in the state of Maryland. So what do you perceive are the significant issues going forward in the state's attorney's office in Howard County? Well, the 
primary um, to issue that's being discussed discussed in the county, and certainly our office is trying to work with our law enforcement partners to figure out where gaps are and how we can fill them, is are the continuing problems with drug addictions and the overdoses. I think we're up to 45 at this point for overdoses in Howard County, fatal overdoses. Oh, my Lord. Um, I actually attended the graduation for our DUI drug court in the district court a few weeks ago, and it was incredibly heartbreaking to hear a set of parents talk about the loss of their daughter, who was a participant in the drug court, and I was told she was the youngest um, participant in the drug court, and then they lost her to overdose. So as a member of the Overdose Fatality Review Team for Howard County, I'm also on and the- And what is the Overdose Fatality Review Team, please? The Overdose Fatality Review Team is a team of individuals from different agencies within the county. Actually, by statute, every county in the state of Maryland is required to now have an overdose fatality review team. Okay. So it is our responsibility to meet uh, regularly and review, sadly, every overdose that has occurred in Howard County. Um, we review the reports, the circumstances of what happened, the background of the person, had they been in touch with either um, the health department before, the uh, police department, our office, the state's attorney's office, you know, had that person ever been through the system before, and just try to see where either gaps were or patterns um, that we can find. And ultimately, um, our hope is to try to, you know, come together with some sort of um, recommendation as to how to address the epidemic that's going through, not just our county, but everywhere. So I'm a member not only of the op the overdose fatality review team, but I'm also a member of the opioid intervention team for Howard County. So, you know, the purpose of all of, all of these agencies getting together is to find out what what can we do? Does everybody have access to the resources that, that they need? And ultimately, the public safety you know, partners are wondering, you know, was there a time that we reached these people before where something else could have been done? Um, you know, we have been having a lot of discussions with the director of the Howard County Detention Center over the past few years, Jack Cavanaugh. He's fantastic. Amazing about, man. Yes. Amazing. So they've got a wonderful program at the detention center. And we've discussed before about, you know, what do you do with those people that either aren't serving enough time, they're just there for a short period of time, and it's not enough time for them to really help them and sure. treat them? Um, or what about the person that is arrested, they have a severe addiction that perhaps contributed to the crime they committed, uh, but they're immediately going to be turned around and released on bond? You know, are, what's going to happen from that point on to the time they get their first court date, which is not going to be for at least 30 days. Um, so I think, you know, as a prosecutor, we simply can't just sit back and say, well, we're, we're strictly reactive and we're just only going to deal with the cases as it comes to us and figure out what to do from this point on. There's things that we can recognize and people that we can talk to beforehand to just start generating that discussion. Um, for example, like I said, just those people who are gonna be released immediately, is there somebody there that we can have either at the commissioner's office, at the courthouse, that can try, if that person is willing, and ready and able, like, can we put a plan together for that person, have referrals there, and just give them something to help them 
between now and coming to court. Sure. Um, so I think you know that's an important role for us to consider is just that we can't sit back and expect the other agencies around us to take care of that and then just hand the file to us with a little bow on top, if that and makes I, sense. I, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's really necessary in the contemporary environment. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that the landscape in that regard has changed across the, la- or the span of your career? The landscape of of the drug overdoses and the you know yes it seems it just seems like it's so much more um, I don't know if dangerous is the right word it's not that we didn't have heroin cases and cocaine cases before when I first started and I certainly recall you know hearing about just horrible tragic overdoses but now it it just is so frequent and some of the individuals they're they're so young or they had never been in contact with the criminal justice system before and you wonder was this even their first time did they even know that they were taking something that had fentanyl in it i Mm. heard this horrible game that's that goes on at some high school parties where teens put out a big candy dish and they all throw in it whatever they could find and get their hands on before they come to the party. And then they take turns going around the table, taking something out of the candy dish and popping it into their mouth and ingesting it, which is frightening in light of some of the things that are out there and the potency of of these drugs. It's incredibly alarming. I would love to be able to, on a regular basis, get into the schools and be able to talk to high schoolers and maybe even middle schoolers about that sort of thing, not to scare them, but simply to hope that they'll be more cautious in their environment. Um, just the drugs are so prevalent. I, you know, we hear that they're just prevalent in schools, and it'd be very easy to get something. Having a new teenager myself, I have a ninth grader. Um, you know, I just I hope that they are cautious and aware uh, that just one time one time taking something could be fatal if we're not careful. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. The time has, as usual, roared by, and I want to thank you very much, Kim, for being a guest today. It's Kim Oldham, who is running for the state's attorney's office in 2018. Give her serious consideration. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bob.